Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Stepping In. It's based upon the lectionary readings for January 12, 2020. On this first Sunday after the Epiphany, we find ourselves at the edge of the River Jordan with Jesus and his cousin John. Jesus wants to be baptized, but John is reluctant to heed the Messiah's request. I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus insists, receives John's baptism of repentance, and experiences a moment of divine revelation as he comes up out of the water. The word epiphany comes from the Greek, epiphania, meaning appearing or revealing. During this brief liturgical season between Christmas and Lent, we are invited to leave miraculous births and angel choirs behind and seek the love, majesty, and power of God in seemingly mundane things. Rivers, voices, doves, clouds, holy hands on our heads, guiding us through the water into new life. In the gospel stories we read during this season, God parts the curtain for brief, shimmering moments, allowing us to look beneath and beyond the ordinary surfaces of our lives and catch glimpses of the extraordinary which is perhaps another way of describing the sacrament of baptism, when the extraordinary of God's grace blesses the ordinary water we stand in. I was 12 years old when my father baptized me. I remember the day clearly, the June sun reflecting on the water, church members, friends, and extended family gathered around the pool singing nothing but the blood of Jesus, my father's hands covering mine as he lowered me into the water. Upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to his divine command, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Apparently, I don't remember this, but it's family lore. I started asking for baptism when I was barely three years old. Asking isn't the right word, actually. If the rumors are true, I begged, cried, and even threw a few tantrums in my father's study, insisting that I was ready to get dunked. My father disagreed. He wanted to make sure I understood what I was doing before I participated in the sacred ritual of the church. Of course, the irony of his caution is not lost on me now. If there was ever a time when I understood what I was doing as a Christian, it was probably at age three, full of trust, open to love, and wholly captivated by mystery. I'm sure my adult life has been one long attempt to return to such simple, beautiful comprehension. But my father had a point. In the evangelical tradition that raised me, baptism was understood to be a symbolic stepping out from the crowd, a personal demonstration of faith. I choose to follow Christ. I choose to identify as a Christian. I choose to make a public declaration, without apology, without shame, of my private beliefs. Accordingly, the question I had to answer before my father plunged me into the water was a creedal question, a do you personally accept and believe question. It was essential that I understood what I was choosing. After all, my baptism was a symbolic enactment of my faith. I won't argue with this understanding of the sacrament. I still find it meaningful in many ways. But when I read the story of Jesus' baptism in this week's gospel, I don't so much see a stepping out. I see a very intentional stepping in. A stepping into a history, a lineage, a geography, an identity. In receiving baptism, Jesus doesn't set himself apart from us. He aligns himself with us. Baptism in Matthew's gospel story is not about othering. It's about solidarity, 
about joining. On the day I was baptized, I had no felt sense that I was giving myself over to something larger, older, wiser, and more capacious than my own one-on-one with Christianity. Baptism, I thought, was all about my effort, my obedience, my responsibility. So much depended on me. There were so many ways I could mess up. I had no idea that my personal decision to love God, important though it is, pales in significance to God's cosmic decision to love me and the whole of humanity and creation along with me. I didn't know that God was ushering me into a story, a huge, sprawling story that began eons before I showed up in my father's study with tiny fistfuls of belief. In other words, I didn't know the paradoxical power of stepping in, of giving myself over to something deeper and more trustworthy than the shifting sands of my own opinions, creeds, and doctrines. An ancient cloud of witnesses, a worldwide community of the faithful, a liturgy that endures, a created universe that whispers, laughs, and shouts God's name from every nook and corner. According to Christian historian John Dominic Crossan, Jesus' baptism story was an acute embarrassment for the early church, precisely because of this stepping in. Why would God's Messiah place himself out of the tutelage of a rabble-rouser like John the Baptist? Why would God's incarnate Son receive a baptism of repentance? Repentance for what? Wasn't he perfect? Why on earth would he wade into the murky waters of the Jordan? aligning himself with the great unwashed who teemed into the wilderness reeking of sin. Worse, why did God the Father choose that sordid moment to part the clouds and call his Son beloved, a moment well before all the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms, the resurrections, a moment long before Jesus accomplished a thing worth praising? Why indeed? And yet this is the baffling, humbling, awe-inspiring story we've inherited we've inherited as Christ's followers. Unbelievable though it may seem, Jesus' first public act is a stepping into his humanity in the fullest, most embodied way. Let it be so, he tells John, echoing the radical consent and obedience of his mother Mary. Let it be so at the hands of another, John the baptizer, because what Jesus does with power is freely surrender it, share it, give it away. Let it be so here, in the Jordan River rich with sacred history, The Jordan where once upon a time the Israelites entered the land of Canaan. The Jordan where the prophet Elijah ended his prophetic ministry and his successor Elisha inaugurated his. The Jordan which lies under the same opened sky God first opened at the dawn of time, at the very beginning of creation. In other words, in this one moment, in this one act, Jesus steps into the whole story of God's work on earth and allows that story to resonate, deepen, and find completion. So, what part of the story is hardest for you to take in? That God appears by means so unimpressive, so familiar, we often miss him? That Jesus enters joyfully into the full messiness of the human family? That our baptisms bind us to all of humanity, not in theory, but in the flesh, such that you and I are kin, responsible for each other in ways we fail too often to honor? That as Christians we are called into radical solidarity, not radical separateness? that we are always and already God's beloved, not because we've done anything to earn it, but because God's very nature, inclination, and desire is to love. To embrace Christ's baptism story is to embrace the core truth that we are united, interdependent, connected, one. It is to sit with the staggering reality that we are deeply, 
deeply loved? Can we bear to embrace these mind-bending truths without flinching away in self-consciousness, cynicism, suspicion, or shame? I'm still coming to terms with the truths of my baptism. I suspect I'll keep doing so for as long as I live. But I don't angst about belief as I used to. I believe and disbelieve a hundred times a day, and yet the efficacy of my baptism holds. That is the point. I am held. Not by my own profession of faith, but by the saving power of the one who holds history, holds time, holds earth and sun and wind and sky, and holds me. The one who parched the water and calls me his beloved child. Baptism, I understand now, is all about stepping in, all about surrender, all about the extraordinary manifesting itself in the mundaneness I humbly embrace, which means I must choose epiphany, choose it and then practice it. The challenge is always before me and before all of us. Look again, look harder, see freshly, stand in the place that looks utterly ordinary and regardless of how scared or jaded you feel, cling to the possibility of a surprise that is God. Listen to the ordinary and know that it is infused with divine mystery. Epiphany is deep water. You can't dip your toes in. You must take a deep breath and plunge in. Yes, baptism promises new life, but it always drowns before it resurrects. What reason for hope, then? What shall we hang on to in this uncertain season of light and shadow? I believe we can hang on to Jesus. He's the one who opens the barrier and shows us the God we long for. He's the one who stands in line with us at the water's edge, willing to immerse himself in shame, scandal, repentance, and pain, all so that we might hear the only voice that will tell us who we are and whose we are in this sacred season. Listen, we are God's chosen, God's children, God's own. Even in the deepest, darkest water, we are the Beloved. For books this week, Dan reviews Never Enough, The Neuroscience and Experience of Addiction by Judith Grissel. Judith Grissel, a behavioral neuroscientist and professor of psychology at Bucknell University, chose the subtitle of her best-selling book quite carefully. For about 10 years, from ages 13 to 23, she abused drugs at a prodigious rate. By some miracles, she survived the mental illness of drug addiction with the help of a 28-day residential treatment program and three months in a halfway house. Since finishing her PhD, her 25 years, she studied the neurobiology, chemistry, and genetics of addictive behavior. And thus, her mixed genre book that's partly the autobiography of personal experience and the scholarship of hard science. In Grissel's view, addiction is the result of numerous factors, genetic predisposition, developmental influences, environmental input, and personal choice. After she surveys most every sort of drug you ever heard of in the middle seven chapters of her book, she asks the loaded question, why me? The short answer will disappoint many. We don't know. Today, we rightly dismiss the older moral model that addicts suffer from weak character. But the pendulum swing that appeals to abnormal biology alone is just as reductionistic. In the end, why some people become addicts and others do not is unpredictable and inscrutable. And what about treatment and recovery? It's no more likely than it was 50 years ago. Despite the lore of what she dismisses as neurohype, addiction is highly resistant to treatment, with recovery rates as low as 10%. As with other brain diseases like Alzheimer's and bipolar disorder, we still lack not only a causal explanation, but also an effective cure. Individual variation is huge. 
Even an objective definition of addiction among experts is controversial beyond agreement about general characteristics like tolerance, dependence, and craving. Bottom line, despite small advances in understanding addiction, rates of addictive disorders are rising. Speaking from her personal experience that is informed by her professional science, Griselle's best advice is to listen to those who love you most and to live in a community of accountability. Truly, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure when it comes to drug addiction. For films this week, Dan reviews The First Face of America. Back in 2007, divers who were exploring an underwater cave in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula made an astounding discovery. A trove of bones from 20 animal species and a nearly complete skeleton of a teenage girl that they later christened Naya, after a mythological nymph. Scientists determined that Naya was 13,000 years old, making her among the earliest known human remains in the Americas. In reconstructing what happened, scientists speculate that she climbed into the cave and then fell into a deep pit that was later cut off by rising sea levels. Even more tantalizing is the fact that her bones are different from today's Native Americans. Who were these Ice Age people? How did they get there? The movie incorporates the commentaries of the two cave divers, the principal investigator of the project, an anthropologist, an archaeologist, a Danish evolutionary geneticist, and a cave paleontologist. My only complaint with this inherently interesting story is the unnecessarily melodramatic music, hokey recreations, and exaggerated narrative. The divers were, quote, breathless with excitement. This 53-minute documentary first appeared in the PBS Nova series and is also available on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry this week, Things to Think by Robert Bly. Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard, vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door, may be wounded and deranged, or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large, tell you you're forgiven, or that it's not necessary to work all the time, or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for January 12th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.